Welcome back to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. It's the NIL Hour. As always, my name is Taryn Sharma. I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Lawson. Mike, how's it going? Taryn, good to be back. Good to be back. Exciting week for NIL. Absolutely. And this week we have a very special guest, Maddie Salmon, fellow Blue Devil. So you're finally outnumbered, Mike. Oh, man. Welcome to the show, Maddie. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Now, Maddie, you have a really interesting background. You played lacrosse at Duke. We won't talk about where you went to law school. You were the former chair of the Division I Student Athlete Advisory Committee, SAC, which we talked about a couple weeks ago with Amanda Kristovich. And you're currently on the board of the College Football Players Association, who our listeners might remember as uh, being the organization that a friend of the show, Jason Stahl, belongs to. So it's really exciting for us to be able to have you today. Yeah, it's great to be here to chat about the topic that we're going to talk about. Speaking of those topics, we've got a few of them. So we're going to jump back into the the Brander lawsuit with EA Sports and one team. That was something that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, a new ruling in that case that might dictate the, the direction. And Maddie, I know that you had some thoughts on the conversation that we had last time when we touched on it. And so I definitely wanted to hear your perspective. Then we'll we'll talk a little bit about Zach and your experience on it and what you thought of that memo that they put out a few weeks ago. And then we'll talk about San Diego State, which is just a lot of drama, whether they're leaving the conference or not leaving it and miscommunication or not and confidentiality rules. That'll be fun. And then we'll finish up, Mike, some movement in New York on NIL. So let's start with Brander, friend of the show, Pete Nakos from On3. He had a really good article that summarized the uh, info and he, he was able to get some quotes from Mitt Winter and, and Darren Heitner on the subject. And Amanda Kristovich also covered it. And so basically the gist is this. Judge Haywood Gilliam, who's a federal district court judge in the Northern District of California, he rejected Brander's motion for a TRO last Friday. He wrote that what appears to be at stake here then is simply the possible monetary benefit that the plaintiff could receive from creating co-branding licensing opportunities that package a school's intellectual property and students' NIL rights together. Plaintiff attempts to couch the loss of this co-branding opportunity as an irreparable harm, but this too falls short. So Brander was alleging damages from tortious interference by one team and EA Sports. And if the TRO had been granted, then we could have seen a filing for preliminary injunction and that could have slowed down the production of the game. Uh, the case could still proceed, but it seems like the merits are kind of against Brander, and it looks like EA is set to move forward with their offers of $500 per student with no royalties. Now, Maddie, you're involved in this, so I, I want to get your take. A lot of people say that that is below what the industry industry standard is for valuation for their the, the student-athletes' rights in this. Where do you come down in that? You know, I think regardless of what the actual dollar amount is, I think the bigger issue with some of the initial speculation, wherever that came from, about what any kind of deal was going to be, you know, it was a $500, but then it was the fact that there were no royalties and there was an exclusivity aspect of that, whereby athletes would not have been able to participate in other video games. And that's a big, first of all, I think with this being such a speculative valuation of this game, this game hasn't been out for 10 years. We don't really know the value of this game, which is why you would want royalties associated with this. And if you're negotiating on behalf of athletes, that's certainly something that you you would be looking for because it simply is a more valuable deal, right? And so 
given the way that the gaming industry has changed in the in the 10 years since this game was last out, you know, there are a lot of factors and we simply don't know. And, you know, the crux of this issue too is the fact that an organization is claiming to speak for athletes that does not in fact speak for athletes. Athletes are not part of this negotiation. And I think the issue in the lawsuit too kind of exposed the fact that Brander was sort of overstating its role in any of that and its ability to even speak for athletes. And so I think that that really calls into question many things. And I think certainly it has opened up a bigger discussion about you know, how involved athletes really need to be in, in this conversation around what any kind of deal would look like. So this was a big turning point or maybe tipping point, leverage point, if you want to call it, for Brandar, where this was a way people kind of thought it was a far reaching lawsuit in, in the beginning. And then if they had won this, then it really would have tipped in their favor. But this just really kind of crumbled on top of them because of this. However, it also kind of cut I, my first thought, too, here is EA is a very powerful entity and what they're doing right now you know, whether it was to Brander or whether it was to another agency that was attempting to be almost like a middleman and negotiate for these athletes, because obviously everything we talk about on this show and everything that, you know, Maddie, you have, have, have kind of talked about is athletes' rights and advocating for athletes' rights here. So does this result kind of give more too much power almost to EA Sports here? where they're really just basically saying, take it or leave it to these athletes. We're going to make this game. I think I mentioned this in the last time we were talking about this, where they're really just going to say, it doesn't matter. We'll make it with you or without you. We can just do a generic player from the university. We already have the deal with the university to use their IP rights. So it really doesn't matter if the athletes are in it or not. And if you want to opt in, great, you get $500. Does this kind of cut out the athletes and what they have as negotiating power, especially I, I think the exclusivity part of it, is interesting. There's not really another game uh, or a you know uh, entity that makes kind of college games. EA Sports that was it. They they were the ones that you know made the NCAA games. But does this kind of remove the voice and the advocacy for athletes? Not necessarily specifically from this decision, but overall what EA is doing. I kind of have a different take on that. I think in a lot of ways it exposed how they were undervaluing athletes in this because in, in their other games they don't they there are royalties associated with it. NFL players get royalties from their games. If they were in fact not offering that, I think it shows an inherent unfairness. I also think it kind of made them walk it back and say, no, 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 we haven't really made any decisions. The roster's not finalized until next season. We did not make the offer that you say. And so it has almost given them time to think about things. I kind of feel like they may have been testing the waters a little bit to see if we float this potential deal out there is anybody going to bite or is there going to be backlash for this that we need to now rethink but i do think that they have issues even if they create a game that just uses the college teams if they are allowing individuals to manipulate the players in different ways i think that it opens up a potential liability for them in that respect so i think it would be difficult to make the game without using the players images and likenesses and interesting because backlash they got i mean whether or not you know yeah sure brander might have lost out on this deal and this opportunity and they definitely we talked about this too 
had some selfish interest in this lawsuit, right? They, they, they thought that they were going to get a piece of this, which is good, right? Because when there's an advocate for an athlete, they want the athlete to get more. So that person also wants to get more. Uh, It's, it's, it's the, the, and I think the interesting thing too, was when Brander was, was kind of coming out with this, speaking up and saying, we care about the interests of athletes. We're speaking on behalf of them. And you know what? They may really believe that, but I think when it comes down to it, they, they clearly are a middleman in all of this. And ultimately- They're trying to make money just like everybody else. I saw a bunch of collectives kind of jumping on board that same train. And, you know, you you can have that goal too, but I think to, to claim that they speak for athletes just is disingenuous. I think that's inherently why you need some kind of players organization because you otherwise have people kind of on all sides of the deal. And there's just an inherent conflict of interest. I mean, Brandar has contracts with the schools. They do not have the contracts with the athletes to be negotiating these deals. Yeah. And I think that that goes back to what you were saying about not really having a seat at the table, not being able to be part of those discussions. So I think that is pretty consistent with what you and Jason have said since the beginning, which is that you want students to have a voice. Now, my take when the story first broke about the $500 and Jason saying that there should be a boycott was that I think that, you know, Jason means well, but he's overestimating the value of a single player's IP as opposed to like a college, because in one, two or three years, four years, the player is gone. They've moved out of the system. Like I'm there to, to grind out like a 30 year dynasty mode. What is your take on that? I obviously, I imagine that you disagree, but can you say more about why? I think the bigger issue is, again, it's the royalties because we don't know the true value of the game. We, we it, That may be undervaluing the athletes. It may not be. Um, but I think that the royalties kind of takes care of that in the end. Um, and certainly getting rid of the exclusivity language, if if that was in fact on the table, you know, I think it just it just makes it fair. So as, a, as additional revenue streams potentially open up in the future and gaming you know, there are all these areas of technology and gaming that, that were not, didn't exist back then. And so to, to act like we can even, this game has just not been on the market. So we don't know. No one really, really knows. But again, I think getting at that angle of granting royalties, that's why that's important. Because then it's less important, you know, that monetary value up front. And it, you know, if the game ends up making way, way more, it's more fair to all the athletes. That are involved. Yeah. I, I think that you're right that we don't know exactly how popular it's going to be, but I think we have a pretty good idea that it's going to be very popular. Like these 10 year old copies of the PlayStation two version of this game are going for 80, a hundred dollars on, on eBay. So like there's a demand for this. I, I think it will do well. And, and if, you know, the players are important to that, obviously, so they should get some cut of it. I think that that is probably a better way to do it. Do you know uh, the exclusivity? Does that stem from the relationships between like the the licensing body, Learfield and EA? Does it stem from the NCAA or or why is I'm not it- sure where that came from. I know that that was in early reporting and it might've been Pete's article that kind of laid that out, uh, but that was included as one of the three main parts of that deal or potential deal that was floated out. Well, we have Holly Summers with us again also today. Holly, where do you come down on all of this? You talked about last time uh, that you were happy that that Brander was at least standing up for the student athletes, even if they did have other motivations. Uh, do you feel any differently today with the new change? I don't guess I feel any differently, but I am 
I'm still concerned kind of what we talked about two weeks ago when we first initially talked about this case about EA maybe just being like, you know what, we're going to give athletes $500. We don't care if everybody thinks it's below market value. If athletes decide or a whole school or whatever decides like our athletes aren't going to participate or we're not going to participate, then maybe the school or sorry, maybe EA will be like, that's fine. We just won't include those specific, those specific athletes or we would just not include athletes at all. And then, like I said, two weeks ago, people would just start making their own skins for people to buy off the internet and download and just play as those athletes. Because like we said in the past, like you can customize the name on the back of the jersey. You can customize kind of what your player looks like or what the athletes and the teams look like. And EA knows that. And I feel like they're not going to be really open to paying athletes more. Um, I am glad that Brandor stood up, but I don't see it really going any farther than than this since the judge ruled against it. Well, Holly, let me ask you about that specifically because Darren Heitner had a really interesting tweet today that knowing that there is this possibility of a player's NIL being taken without being compensated for it, EA could be left open to potential legal challenges if they just allow people to input all of the information, the name, image, and likeness of these individual players that aren't accepting this deal. Do you think that that's a a possible danger for EA? I saw Darren Heitner's tweet and I thought it was interesting thinking that maybe EA might still be in some sort of trouble for giving the option to customize these characters if the characters of the players are created to look like athletes in the real world. I don't exactly know. Maybe I'm just kind of still a baby lawyer. I don't exactly know how EA could be too like held liable for that. If it's people who are buying the game, downloading the game, and then doing their own customization within the game by themselves, and then taking that and selling or distributing whatever these custom teams and custom like customizations are um i think that if it were to be something where somebody who downloaded and bought the game does this and makes a whole team like say they make like a whole unc team for basketball in the game or for football in the game then sells it on like etsy or something because i know you can buy different downloads on etsy i think they could get in trouble like some of these students could come after those specific etsy shops and etsy sellers but i just don't know how ea could be in trouble for that if it's the game users who are the ones creating the customizations by way of example real quick in some games they don't allow you to edit physical characteristics and biographical information about the player so in for example yeah, even though a lot of these players are totally invented, they don't even let you change their names. So like you couldn't create a Lionel Messi, for example. So it's not impossible for them to do that. And maybe that was a possible thing that they had to agree to in the yeah. past. Also a comparison to this too, it, I don't know if you remember, but Major League Baseball video games, whether it was like MVP Baseball, MLB The Show, whatever, yeah. Barry Bonds withdrew yeah, yeah. from the Major League Baseball Players Association and the licensing agreement that they had didn't apply to him and he didn't allow them to use his likeness for those games. So yeah. the game kind of skirted it by creating a generic player that basically had his stats, had his size, and they named him like Joe Smith or something like that. Yeah, John mm-hmm. Dowd. No, John Dowd. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. He looked completely different. They they were smart <laughs> about that because, you know, Barry Bonds, bald, large, black guy, they made John Dowd like 
a white guy with a goatee. Or you could go in and customize whoever you wanted and end up just looking like Barry Bonds. But the same way that Bill Belichick is not in Madden, right? Like he's, he just doesn't belong to that. Maddie, can you tell us a little bit more about what the CFBPA is doing right now in terms of trying to help student athletes get more of a, a, a voice? Right now, CFBP is doing a lot of mobilization effort and getting, trying to get buy-in from players and coaches to really kind of help athletes understand what organizing can do. And because I think, you know, to go back to an issue that SAC always had was always around adequately representing the interests of athletes. And so by having an organization that is solely focused on one sport that can bring athletes together and, and and build that consensus, you know, is very important. And so that's what the CFBPA is working on, is working on building membership and again, getting, getting buy-in from coaches on that level as well to understand the benefit to their players. And student athletes, I mean, they're pretty sophisticated at this point, especially with NIL. Do they kind of understand that they might have the possibility of having greater value or, or that, that they could get these royalties if they stick together? Yeah, I think as as more of these conversations are taking place and athletes are getting more sophisticated, you know, you start to realize the importance of kind of banding together and figuring out these group licensing deals. Um, and certainly I think when you have you have companies like Brandar coming out and, and proclaiming, you know, purporting to speak for athletes, it is very important for an actual athlete group to exist, to really be able to do that, that is solely interested in the athletes and not kind of brokering on all sides of the deal. So I think, yes, athletes are seeing that value. And I think, especially as more conversations happen around the potential of athletes being classified as employees, that's going to, you know, that's even more of an issue and certainly something that if that status does change is going to be something that is very important for athletes because at present, you know, there is not that structure to be able to do that. It's a perfect segue to something else that we wanted to talk to you about. You you have this really cool experience where when you were at Duke, you were the chair of SAC. So you've been in on those meetings. The article that we discussed with Amanda Kristovich when she came on was about the memo that that Zach had written saying that they did not believe that student athletes should be employees and that that they don't want to for for specific reasons or more general, but educational focus, the workload and time commitments, the amateurism and fair play, which we thought was a little bit weird, maybe force fed, and then financial sustainability, which again, you know, (laughs) the theory in that, which she got from her conversations with former student athletes is that a lot of the the words that come out from SAC are really kind of fed to them by NCAA employees. And they don't necessarily, as they purport, represent the views of student athletes. I, what was your experience? Do you think that, that that's barking up the right tree there? I think, well, I mean, first of all, if you read that memo, it reads like every other NCAA memo. There is some very specific language that tracks with every other memo that's been released, language from, you know, 
current and past NCA presidents. I think really what happens, because what I will say is that staff members are very well-intentioned individuals and they do work really hard on behalf of athletes. And what I think what happens is that unfortunately there is some tactics that are used by the NCAA liaisons that do kind of very heavily influence um, how SAC comes out on certain issues. And that's because when they, when certain topics are presented, you know, there's conversation around a table usually about a lot of these issues and, and good dialogue. But what will happen is an NCAA staff member will step in and go, well, here's why this is really good for athletes and kind of I guess in a, in a way, spoon feed the answer that they would like SAC to come out with by making it sound like, oh, well, here's what you haven't considered. And this is why these institutions, why these ADs, why these other members of the NCAA basically are in favor of this policy. And here's what you haven't thought of. And I think over the years, especially you've seen more and more where SAC has come out wanting to punish athletes for things and has issued points like what were made in the memo about financial concerns and all these various things that really are are not in Zach's purview and, and wouldn't be something that an athlete organization would be concerned about. They would be concerned about what is best for athletes and, you know, UNCAA and institutions, you can figure it out how to, how to make that happen, but this is what we think, you know, and, and quite frankly, I think some of the, the concepts even that were in that memo were pretty sophisticated and not, I think what a college student really knows. And certainly I think that would have been above my head when I was, when I was on SAC, many of those topics, and it's not to take anything away from those individuals. It's just that, you know, I also know that whenever anything was issued by SAC, when I was on the committee, it was heavily vetted. It went through the media team, PR, and the lawyers on staff. So it's not like it anything just got sent out. So this included, I mean, I, I think what would have happened is even if the chair of SAC wrote a significant amount of it, right, it would have been stylized in NCAA styling and then all this other stuff. So what would have come out would have, and you know, you can see from the memo, it looks exactly like their other memos. So I'm not sure exactly what was written specifically by SAC, but certainly it's NCAA talking points. Yeah. So it's, it's not getting released unless the NCAA wants it that way. I can't speak for what exactly happened, but that would be my, my best guess. Speaking of things that would like not be in the purview of like what SAC members are like focused on, I thought was the antitrust exemption. They're like, they were seeking an antitrust exemption. I saw that. I was like, what, what does that have to do with the SAC? You know, I, I just, that blew me away, but I just want to get your thoughts. Do you think that Congress could see through that? Like uh, everybody's been talking about, you know, this was written by the NCAA or whether it was written by SAC, it was, you know, redlined and, and stylized, as you said, by, you know, the NCAA. But do you think Congress can just kind of see through that and be like, this is just the NCAA trying to you know, appear like it's coming from the student athlete perspective? I, I think someone with critical thinking skills could easily deduce that. Yes. So <laughs> I would like to give Congress enough credit that they could read one NCAA memo and read the SAC memo and go, you know, this reads pretty much exactly the same. And just structurally, I mean, SAC really relies heavily on the NCAA and individuals within the organization to even put them in rooms and, and get in front of people. So you know, the inherent problem with SAC has always been that it's housed within the NCAA. It has no independent 
power and authority. It didn't even have a vote until very recently. That was after years of SAC being told that we had more influence without a vote. I mean, that was, that was something you fought for, right? That was the last thing I did as chair of SAC was to stand up in front of the committee and go, we need a vote and we need to be included at every single level. Now, of course, what they granted was a very nominal vote. And, and certainly when it's as heavily influenced as SAC's vote is, it doesn't mean very much. But I think that if nothing else, it did get more uh, administrators involved more directly with SAC and speaking to athletes. But the fact of the matter is that, that SAC cannot adequately represent all athletes in all conferences. That was something that that we very much struggled with when I was there. There are just too many divergent issues you know, and even to represent multiple athletes in multiple sports is hard enough. But when you when you break them down into various conferences, different needs and abilities, it's an impossible task. And you're talking about 31 to 32 college students who are also full time, you know, students and athletes trying to advocate on behalf of other athletes. It's just it's a tall task. And then on top of it, you know, athletes don't feel like SAC really speaks for them. And so there is an inherent kind of, I want to say disrespect, but just not, it, the, the committee is not taken extremely seriously. I think it's it's great for leadership skills. I can't speak enough for the people that I was involved with on the committee, but, you know, the fact of the matter is we just didn't have that much power, unfortunately. That kind of leads me to a follow-up question I had for you since you have experience on the committee the memo was signed by only Cody, one of the chairs, I guess, for the Division One SAC. Um, is that something that is common for a letter that's written like this or a memo that's written like this to be only signed by one of the members? Because we kind of talked about this, and I think I asked Amanda the same question. All of the other letters were signed by multiple athletes from the divisions, and this one was only signed by, I think it was a previous athlete who is now part of the coaching staff. Yeah. So I know a lot was made of that. I don't, I don't particularly put much weight into that. It was the chair of the committee. He signed it. Everybody else's name wasn't written at the bottom. Um, I don't think that that means very much. I mean, I, I certainly don't think that that means that the rest of the committee members were not aware of this letter, didn't look at it first and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that we were kind of maybe speculating on and wondering. So it's good to know what you think about that. Yeah, and I, I don't know that there's even a standard form for that, really. I know that the other divisions did that, but again, I I, I don't put a lot of weight into that specifically. Speaking of stylized and miscommunications and uh, what's happening right now, a big thing came out of the Mountain West Conference uh, with San Diego State University allegedly possibly be you know exiting the Mount West Conference but I guess there seems to be some miscommunications between letters from San Diego State University and the Mount West Conference so, so background San Diego State needed to give a one-year notice to the Mount West Conference uh, that they were going to exit and that deadline would have been June 30th so then they would be exiting by July 1 of, of 2024 out of the conference which comes with an, an exit fee which we'll talk about but also, there were six letters that went back and forth between San Diego State University and the Mountain West Conference in which they were basically saying that they were thinking about it or they were letting them know that they were trying to inquire and potentially, I guess, seek a one-month extension on the June 30th deadline. There was some you know, communications back and forth, but the final letter is kind of the most important one where 11 p.m. on the deadline Friday, June 30th, 
there was a right. final letter from San Diego State University, you know, final like stating that they're not withdrawing from the conference and that they are, are, are going to stay uh, and that that's their final determination. However, Mountain West kind of has now really doubled down. It's like, nope, you're out and we're holding your $6.6 million that we owe you for revenue share as your first installment of your $17 million exit fee, uh, because that is what they would have been charged for an exit fee if they had given the the one-year resignation. So a lot is going back and forth here. And, and we just talked about like the weird miscommunication here with potentially SAC and NCAA writing it, but this is even, I, I don't know, even more weird. I just want to pitch it to you, Maddie, what your, what your thoughts are on this and, and what even is the possible resolution here for San Diego State University to say, no, we're still here. And so much <laughs> so that they've been removed. The next meeting that the, the conference has is July 17th and San Diego State doesn't have a seat at that table. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that my initial thought really was, why didn't they just wait until they had the $6.6 million and then send, send the letter? But, and I, I, we were talking about it before the show, I think my favorite uh, article that I've read so far on this, it was comparing what they did to an episode of Seinfeld where George Costanza decides to fire or quit in, in pretty dramatic fashion and then kind of just casually return to the office the next day. You know, I don't know what's going to happen. I think that it's going to be up for the Mountain West uh, conference to decide. It certainly seems like at this point, they're pretty committed to collecting the exit fee and, you know, perhaps increasing it, you know, if they're not granted that one month extension, especially, but it, it, I mean, this is an interesting story to watch unfold. Um, I know that there's been speculation about, whether San Diego State's kind of waiting out an invitation from another conference and then then it won't matter as much. But I mean, I, I think from just a theatrical perspective, it's pretty uh, interesting. I think what's crazy is they're withholding the 6.6 million. I don't even know if they're allowed to do that as a part of the revenue sharing. Like, is that a breach right there? Like, sure, they owe 17 million, but they're still owed the 6.6 from last year's revenue share. And the 17 million is just due by July 1st, 2024, when they actually exit the conference. So can they even actually withhold the 6.6 million? That's the separation. I think that's the question. No, like when, so it depends on whether you see the initial San Diego state letter as being a, a notice to resign, because if you do, then the Mountain West commissioner correctly triggers the separation process, which includes kicking the San Diego state president off the board and then keeping the $6.6 million payment as like the first segment of the 17 million that's owed. But I, I think that maybe that money doesn't get paid out until after the deadline. So maybe that's why they didn't wait. Cause otherwise that would have been really smart. You wait, collect the 6.6 million. And then it's like, oh, by the way, we're leaving. <laughs> Goodbye. Right, right. The Mountain West <laughs> conference I, is holding on to the revenue sharing money until that deadline. Because then they're owed double. If you're if you don't give one year, right. then then the double and they owe thirty four million. This is, I think, just a testament to how all of these things are kind of interrelated, right? The Pac twelve couldn't get their meteorites deal done, and because of that, uh, they weren't able to make offers to new members. And San Diego State probably would have been one of those new members. And then San Diego State was in limbo. We we don't want to pay thirty four million dollars, so we better leave now but also just kidding like we weren't ever gonna leave guys we love the mountain west this is all kind of part of the larger conversation about how schools decide to spend money whether it is buying out coaches or exiting conferences you think about how much 
6.6 million dollars would do for athletes or 16.5 whatever we're talking about and how much that could do for mental health services you know health insurance all these things that would truly directly benefit athletes and we're constantly talking about these large chunks of money just sort of almost arbitrarily being thrown around because the school decides to leave or decides to hire a new coach and fire an old one. To tie it back to the EA Sports thing, the entire pool that apparently is at stake there is $5 million. That's what the uh, student-athlete payments would be coming out of. And this is 6.6 just for the first installment. My favorite part of like the letters was the most, I guess, the June 30th letter from De La Torre that said, I'm pleased to advise you that we have decided to stay in the Mountain West. And then the follow-up just being like, We'll discuss it at our July 1st meeting or or not the July 1st, July 17th meeting, but you're not invited. So I thought that was pretty funny. Very, very comical, very, like you said, theatrical kind of funny responses. Well, Maddie, student athletes, again, not part of these discussions, right? If I know that the school that you went to has obviously been in the ACC for a long time, but do you know anyone who was at a school that transitioned conferences and how did that mess up their plans or, or their, their day to day? Well, look, when I was in school, Maryland left the ACC, right? Uh, had I gone there for, to play lacrosse, that would have been a huge deal. We went to the big 10. It wasn't very good. I mean, I, it's, I should knock the big 10, but it, it was not the lacrosse conference, right? right? Like the ACC really and truly was, that's a big deal for a lot of athletes it's also, it means, it means different travel schedules. It means different rivals. Um, it's, it's so many things and athletes are consistently sort of left out of consideration of all of that. I think it's a huge deal. I'm still not over Maryland leaving the ACC or Notre Dame joining or Louisville because it, it totally changes up the makeup of the conference that you grow to kind of enjoy and appreciate. And now with so many schools coming in and out of all of these different conferences, it's hard to even keep track anymore. And, and I don't, you know, I, I think there's a part of me that that feels like it it sort of does wreck some of the rivalries that are so near and dear to a lot of fans' hearts. I still think of Maryland as ACC country and not <laughs> Big Ten. So I think, you know, in terms of the athletes, yeah, it does it does affect athletes. And and that would have been a big that would have been a big deal to me. I think it's a big deal to a, a lot of people who go from either less competitive to more competitive or the other way around. And I think the other way around is usually where a lot of athletes have maybe a, a bigger issue at times. Yeah. And talking about like changing the makeup of the Mountain West conference, like for basketball, San Diego state, the Aztecs have been like great. The last like three of the last four years, I think they've been the number one in their conference. San Diego state was in the, the finals of the of 2023 March madness losing to Connecticut. So that would change the makeup. Absolutely. Uh, of this conference. And now with all of the the media rights deals too, if a, if the most successful pro- program in a conference then leaves, what does that do to future deals as well? Uh, I think there's a lot of considerations in, in all of that. Um, so it is it is interesting when you start to talk about conferences moving and then potentially making certain ones more valuable or less. There's a lot to kind of consider in all of that. So great discussion. We're obviously going to continue following that. I am always hoping that there will be a court case because it's just fun to to keep talking about these things. But um, another Ninth news. Circuit case. Yeah, let's let's have it. Big news, Mike, in New York, something that you've been following very closely. Yeah. So the, the, we talked about the last two episodes ago, we talked about the New York 
bill where New York State has passed an amendment to their NIL bill, which would protect their state schools. They're going to fall in line with, I think it's Oklahoma. Texas has a bill now, maybe Arkansas. There's, there's some a, a handful of states that are protecting their own schools within that state, basically from the power of conferences in the NCAA, uh, where they, they're saying that, you know, their schools would be protected if they, you know, participate in, facilitate student athletes with name, image, likeness, uh, particularly as it relates to collectives and boosters and things like that, where the NCAA has been very much against that and, and the involvement of schools as it relates to NIL. They put so, out specific guidance for this. Uh, this was what we talked about with Dan last week. Correct. And, th and then so much so that the NCAA has basically said that, you know, the NCAA bylaws is what the states need to follow and not their own state's <laughs> laws. And it, it sent out a lot of Twitter threads about whether or not the NCAA is above the law. They're talking about Judge Kavanaugh from the Austin case and whether or not, you know, the NCAA, your membership is voluntary. So you should just leave the conference if you don't agree with the, by, the bylaws that the NCAA is instituting. So all of this, regardless, despite all that, I said this the last time, and maybe that was the NCAA's goal, was that they wanted the states to actually expedite the process and they wanted all the states to have this. So there's not an uneven keel of some states have this where schools can be involved and some states don't. New York had already had their bill. It was basically just waiting to be signed by Governor Hochul. It has been officially signed by Governor Hochul. Obviously, the biggest part of the amendment is to subsection B, where it says an athletic association, conference, or other group or organization with authority over inter intercollegiate athletics including the NCAA, shall not prevent a student athlete from earning compensation pursuant to this section. And then subsection C is the Athletic Association Conference or other organization with authority, the NCAA, shall not prevent a college from participating in intercollegiate athletics as a result of allowing student athletes to pers uh, pursuant to this section from earning compensation as a result of student athletes' name, image, likeness. So they, they can't prevent schools from being involved with name, image, and likeness, which is exactly what the NCAA just said that they were not allowed to do, but and it, this was already going to be signed in anyways. Maddie, I want to get your take. What do you think the NCAA really is is going to gain from their guidelines that they're saying that the, the, their schools are supposed to follow their own bylaws instead of the, the state laws? Do you think state states are going to you know flood the legislature with, with similar bills like New York? I mean, I, I think it's going to be interesting to watch this unfold, but I, you know, I, I think that it is just a greater, uh, it, it's interesting to watch the NCAA do this because it, it seems like they still think that their rules are law and they're not. So I, I don't know, this, this could be, I think the angle that they might have is, is in their lobbying Congress for federal legislation, because as more states do this, you know, they're going to go to, to Congress and say, well, our hands are tied. We can't do anything. You know, will they sue all the states? I don't know. Will they force, you know, a school to kind of react to them? I don't, it will be very interesting. But I, I thought that their memo was fascinating because they're, they're just outright telling schools to violate their own state laws, which of course is not, <laughs> they're not entitled to do that. So we'll see. I think there, it, it could be interesting in the sense that, you know, you have some case law that could be helpful to the NCA with NCA Miller, but I think that that would be, I do think that would be analyzed differently. That was a 1993 case. A lot has changed. You have other, you know, Supreme Court case. You have you Alston. You have language from Alston. You have just the landscape of college sports has changed a ton. You know, I think that that case might turn out differently. So, 
it'll be interesting to see this happen, but I think that it's very clear that the NCA is kind of revving up for a fight of some sort. Which, by the way, the language in Alston so much stronger than the language which the NCAA coasted on from Board of Regents forever. Do you think, you talked about like what the NCAA is potentially going to do, whether or not they're going to file some sort of suit. I think the biggest thing here is it's it's almost like a game now of cat and mouse of what do schools want to do? And, you know, we talked about some of the smaller schools that would be hesitant to do this last, last time we talked about like Iona being more hesitant, but Syracuse with a lot more power and, and more say could, you know, be involved now. And do something and then basically saying to the NCAA, violate, like like seeing what the NCAA is actually going to do in this instance. Do you think something like that, it's going to have to be a domino effect or something like that? It seems like there are schools and states that are are absolutely intending to follow their state law. I think that the other interesting part about the NCAA memo is, was reminding schools of the fact that they could change the NCAA rules. So maybe you'll see a movement there. I, I just think it's much easier to change a state law than it is to get anything passed in the NCAA. But, you know, it's going to be interesting. It seems like there are schools in Texas that intend to do the same thing. And I think that there is a lot of power in, in schools kind of banding together and saying, OK, punish us, do something, see what happens. So, I mean, that 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 does seem to be where we are with that at this point. It's kind of a wait and see. I was kind of thinking when I read through the amendment, I was thinking it sounds like basically like going opposite of what y'all talked about last week with the NCAA memo is that state law still trumps the NCAA and what they what they say, even if it is a member school in New York. And it seems like the only way I think I read an article that mentioned this in Sports Illustrated was like the only way the NCAA could go around these states making these rules saying the NCAA can't really do anything to the schools within our states because our law trumps NCAA law or NCAA regulations is if they brought a case maybe through a federal level, I think is kind of what the source was saying is that they can't really bring a case against schools with state law, but a federal law, I did wonder like- It would have to basically go through the commerce clause or the contracts clause. That would right. be the NCAA's was- perspective. Which I think, which is why I bring up NCAV Miller, because I, I don't think that that case necessarily gets decided the same way today that it did in 1993. My thought was more like along the lines of, is this going to be a push for a federal law? Or is it going to be more like, no, we're going to side with the states and Congress is like, we don't really feel like we need to push along this federal law kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think the NCA is not done lobbying. I think this gives them some more ammunition, if you will. I, I, you know, I think they can absolutely point to these issues around the country at this point. I don't know that Congress, either there's enough motivation in Congress to actually do that, or that they will be able to come to con- some consensus. I think simply because if you look at the federal legislation. You know, it it ranges from pretty much sticking to NIL to everything in the kitchen sink. And I think where a lot of these bills will ultimately fail is that they just they're too ambitious. They're trying to tackle too much. There is a lot in college sports that needs to change. And and there are some very important components of a lot of these federal bills. I mean, certainly health and safety of athletes is to me always will be the most important issue in college sports. Um, That does not mean that I think that you can get a bill through that deals with everything all at once. I think you need to kind of stick to 
NIL, I think early on, if some of these bills were just more bare bones, we might have gotten that. Um, but I think that as more more politicians have sort of jumped in, whether they're doing it for their own political motivations or they really, really want to help athletes, I think that it's just become too much. Um, so I am I'm very skeptical that that anything will come from the federal level still, but I could be wrong. Yeah, all of this kind of feels in a way that it is directly pointed at and the, the Tupperville bill, which is like, let's give the NCAA the power to oversee all of NIL, let them be a clearinghouse. And all of these states are like, no, why would we allow them to do that? So that's something that we're going to continue to to follow. Um, Maddie, really, really appreciate you joining us tonight. Where can people find you and your work? What do you want to plug? You can follow me on Twitter at MadSal15. I intend to start putting out some more podcasts. I'm speaking of athletes. We shall see. But those are probably the best places to follow some of my content. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate it again and can't wait to have you back on. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. Thanks for joining, Maddie. Thank you. We want to remind everyone that our podcast is sponsored by Themis Bar Review. Themis Bar is the best bar prep company in the galaxy. We hope everyone that is using Themis is gearing up for the bar at the end of the month. Now that we are in July, good luck to everyone using Themis and good luck to all those taking the bar. Make sure to check out Themis Bar Review. Here is also a message from our platform, Spotify. Thanks again, Maddie. And on behalf of myself, Mike, Holly, the entire Conduct crew, you can find us as always at Con Detrimental. And we'll catch you next time on another episode of Conduct Detrimental. <laughs>